I am here to uh, open God's word, and we are going to be in John chapter 18. So we're continuing in our series, the Believe series, through the Gospel of John. I'm very excited about this sermon uh, and all of my preparation. There was just a lot of cool things that God revealed to me, and I'm excited to share that with you. So go ahead and open your Bibles, get your phones out, and open them up to your Bible app. We're going to be in John chapter 18, and I'm going to read the first 12 verses of that chapter. So John chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. The Bible says this, after Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. And when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the company of soldiers, the commander, and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and tied him up. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you are good and that you are God. Lord, and what we earned is not what we got. God, what we've earned is death and eternal separation from you. And yet, while we were dead in our sins, the Bible says that you sent your son to raise us again, to give us eternal life by simply just belief in your son, Jesus Christ. And so we praise you for that this morning. And we pray, Lord, that as we open your word and we, we dig into a little bit this morning, Lord, that you, would, uh, that you would allow your Holy Spirit to speak through me, that you would remove me from this stage, God, that you would communicate the message that you want your people to hear. And Lord, I just pray that you would receive all glory, honor, and praise this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I would like to first start out by reminding us where we are in this particular narrative. So we've just concluded this series of dialogue between Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. This is where the Last Supper had taken place as well. And it was there that we, we can read about back in chapter 17, an entire chapter of scripture dedicated to prayers that Jesus spoke, whether or not these were in private, kind of quietly, or in the presence of his disciples, we know that he prayed. He prayed for himself, he prayed for the disciples, and he prayed for us. He prayed for all believers. 
We looked at these uh, the last two weeks that we were together. That's, that's kind of uh, where we landed, which leads us to where we are this morning, what we've just read. So I want to, again, revisit just the first three verses of this passage and go a little bit deeper as to where we are in this setting. So again, verse 1 said, after Jesus had said these things, so that's referring to the upper, the upper room discourse and the prayers, He went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons." Okay, so we have Jesus and his 11 disciples. Remember, Judas is no longer with them. He left the upper room after, uh, and actually, ironically enough, the last time I preached, it was when Jesus had identified Judas as the betrayer. Now, the disciples didn't really catch on to that, but Judas goes away from them, and he goes to find this company of soldiers, and he's going to then start seeking out Jesus for them to arrest him. And they left that upper room and they made their, their way out to a garden across what's, what John calls the Kidron Valley. Now, there are a couple of things to remember about what's going on at this given time. First, we have to remember that it's Passover week. Okay, so that's important for a couple of reasons. So first off, due to the city being filled with thousands upon thousands of visitors for the Passover, there would have been very little room for lodging within the city walls, so to speak. Uh, internal uh, places to stay. And so we also have to consider that Jesus and his disciples were uh, by no means wealthy. So they, A, probably couldn't afford a place to stay indoors. So that's why they were probably camping outdoors. But at the same time, we have to remember that Jesus at this point is a highly wanted man. There is a target on his back. We've spoken about that numerous times. So they're probably camping outdoors during their visit to the temple during Passover week. If you were to actually read Luke's gospel account, chapter 21, verse 37 tells us exactly that. It tells us that it was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, where Jesus was spending his nights. He would teach in the temple during the days and then spend his nights out here in the garden. We understand from our passage that Judas, verse 2 was obviously very familiar with this location that Jesus and his disciples are hanging out. No doubt it would have been one of the first places he would have taken this company of soldiers. No doubt this would have been one of the first places he would have looked. Jesus always hung out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's check there first. Bit of a side note, but this is something... I'm just going to point out to you real quickly. I'm not going to spend time on this. I'm a nerd, so I find stuff like this fascinating. It says that in order for Jesus and his disciples to get to the Mount of Olives, that they went out across the Kidron Valley. And so I looked up what the Kidron Valley is. Is that significant? And first off, whenever you consider valleys and mounts in Jerusalem, that's not to, we probably think of something a lot bigger Uh, It's basically like a mount could be equated to like the hillside over there. It's just something very small. And so if there's two of those hills and there's a valley, not like our valley here that we live in, if there's a valley that runs through that, that's the valley that they're speaking of. 
Now, this valley, apart from the rainy seasons, was usually a dry and barren place. The word Kidron means dark and gloomy. There's nothing down there. It's not anything significant except its location to the temple. Because during Passover, it was the main point of drainage from the temple. So there are hundreds of thousands of people at the temple daily during Passover. Now, what are they doing there? They're offering up sacrifices to God and worship, right? Well, if you're slaughtering animals day in and day out, that's a lot of blood that's going to pull up. Where does that blood run to? It drains out of the temple down to the Kidron Valley. And so as I'm thinking about that, Jesus walking to the place where he would ultimately be betrayed and then arrested and then taken and accused falsely and then put on a cross as a sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he's passing over this valley into that place where he would be arrested, no doubt seeing the blood that, was, that, that has filled that valley from the sacrifices just earlier that day. And I just find that amazing. William Barclay, famous uh, Bible scholar, says this, from the altar there was a channel down to the brook Kidron, and through that channel the blood of the Passover lambs drained away. So when Jesus crossed the brook of Kidron, it would still be red with the blood of the lambs which had been sacrificed. I just think that's incredible. It's details like this that John includes that they walked across that valley, and there's significance in that. Matter of fact, Spurgeon, he points out that this brook of blood would no doubt remind him of his approaching sacrifice, for it flowed the blood and refuse from the temple. Okay, so we have this location, but I want to point out one more thing before we jump into the points in the handout. I want you to read verse 3 with me again. Verse 3 says, So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. A company of soldiers. I'm going to be honest. Anytime I've ever seen this scene, for lack of a better term, played out in movies or TV shows or series, this is how it often looked, something like this. So, you know, you have Judas approaching Jesus with some of the religious leaders, and it's usually a handful, maybe 12 to 20 Roman soldiers with him, which makes sense. They're there to arrest one man. There's 11 other men with them, but, you know, 20 Roman soldiers can probably get the job done. But that portrayal, based upon the research that I did, is simply not that accurate. This is going to be important. The word for company, some translations say a detachment of soldiers, is the Greek word spira, which is understood to be a cohort, which is essentially a tenth of a legion of soldiers. Now, a legion of soldiers is about 6,000 men. So if my math is correct, it's understood that about 600 Roman soldiers accompanied Judas, the temple police, as well as the Pharisees in pursuit of one guy. Now, they came armed and ready. It said they had, they had lanterns and torches, probably assuming that he's hiding out somewhere. We're going to have to go find this guy. It's the middle of the night. And they're armed with weapons. They're ready to put an end to any uprising that might occur. And this makes sense, right? Because it's Passover. There are way more Jews in Jerusalem at that time. And so obviously there would be more of a Roman presence to make sure that things 
stay relatively calm and controlled. We're not looking for any kind of uproar. We're not looking for any kind of problem. So we're gonna keep things at bay. So there no doubt would have been that many soldiers available, especially to go out and find this militant leader that supposedly is here to uh, overthrow the oppressor and establish his kingdom and his rule here on earth. There's murmurings about this Jesus guy. Now, this is speculative, so take it for what it is, but I imagine Judas warning the religious leaders and soldiers about the things he'd seen Jesus do. No doubt, the religious leaders themselves know and have heard some of the things that Jesus has done, miraculous, uh, miracle, uh, miraculous healings and things like that. I mean, he's raised a man from the dead. Not only that, Judas multiple times throughout Jesus's ministry has heard Peter very clearly say, listen, if anybody tries anything with my rabbi, I'm gonna put up a fight. Now it's obvious that Jesus has rebuked Peter in those statements, but or Judas would no doubt have Peter in the back of his mind. Like if we go and try to arrest Jesus, I have no idea what Peter might do, let alone the rest of them. All this to say, these men came to take care of this man named Jesus once and for all. There was no messing about. And I say all of this because it's going to be important as we walk through the next couple of points on the handout. So in this passage, what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to four things that I feel are most significant. And what I'll do is I'll kind of tie them together at the end. So first and foremost, if you're taking notes, I want us to see this. I want us to see Jesus's claim of deity. Jesus' claim of deity in verses 4 through 6. So let's look at those verses again. So we have this setting. They're in the garden. We have this huge detachment of troops, this company of soldiers, along with the temple police, the Pharisees, and Judas, coming to arrest Jesus. And it says this, Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. And Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. And when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Have you ever been surrounded before? And not like in a good way, not in like a flash mob at the mall kind of way. I don't know if any of you have ever partaken, you know, like to start breakdancing in the middle of the mall and then a big crowd surrounds you and was like, yeah, get it because malls exist anymore. Okay, the point is, not in a good way. I mean, imagine something like this. You know, the episode of Cops where the, the police, we have the place surrounded and there's nowhere for the perpetrator to go. Panic sets in. See, I remember whenever I was 13 or 14, I'm gonna probably tell a story that I don't even know if my parents know, so sorry about this, guys. Uh, and it's not something I'm proud of, but it's just something that has happened to me. Um, I used to skate. Uh, skateboard whenever I was younger, and I used to run with some kids that were kind of punks. Uh, I was never really into anything too bad. Just I just ran my mouth a lot and things like that. So there were a couple of neighborhood kids in a certain spot we used to skate at, and me and a couple of my buddies just used to bully these kids, for lack of a better term. And it's not something I'm proud of. If anything, I got mine based upon the story I'm about to tell. But there was one particular day where these kids... The one in particular left after about 10 minutes of me just heckling him and just not being very kind. And I figured, sweet, that was easier than other days. So he's gone. He's out of my hair. About 10, 15 minutes later, though, he comes back with about five or six bigger, 
more intimidating friends of his. And before I knew it, I was surrounded. One of them had a knife. Not that they pulled it on me and like held it to me at any point, but there was some, there were some words exchanged. And it's funny, I, I say this because it's in moments like these where it's easy and almost natural, even though I put myself in this situation, so don't compare myself to Christ in this because that's not what happened. But it's that idea of being surrounded. It's natural to feel vulnerable in those situations. It's natural to, to feel scared and fearful. You develop this victim mentality. Again, even though I put myself in that situation, it's not, I'm outnumbered. What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? What are they going to do to me? Now, with that said, and I've touched on this in a previous sermon, but I think it's incredible how John put such great emphasis on Jesus' knowledge, understanding, and awareness of the surrounding circumstances. I mean, his demeanor says it all. Jesus in no way displays any ounce of shock or surprise. There's, there's no signs of hesitancy in any way, shape, or form. There's, there's no display of... of Fear, there's no display of victim mentality, and that's because Jesus is in no way a victim. As a matter of fact, if you look at Matthew's gospel account of this same event in chapter 26, we're not going to turn there, I'm just going to explain what happens. Jesus himself says in some of the dialogue that goes back and forth between these parties that he could call down more than 12 legions of angels to fight for him. Now, let's, let's think back here. Remember, a legion is six thousand. And Jesus is saying that at any moment he could call on his father and more than 12 legions of angels would appear by his side and fight for him. Now, is that significant? You better believe it. If you're wondering what that would do exactly, 1 Kings chapter 19 verse 35 tells us that one angel in one night destroyed 185,000 Assyrians all by himself. Imagine 12 legions of these angelic beings coming and, and advocating and fighting on Jesus' behalf. Jesus could fight back if he wanted. It wouldn't even be close. But listen, Jesus knows exactly what's going on. As a matter of fact, back in John chapter 17, in verse 1, the prayer that Jesus starts, he actually, he, he begins this prayer with this. He says, or it says this, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Father, the hour has come. He knows it's time. He did not wait. He did not hesitate to be, to be apprehended, but he took initiative and he voluntarily confronted these people. And he did so with unmatched authority. Did you see it? Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out. He went out and said to them, who is it that you're seeking? They say it's Jesus of Nazareth. They're identifying the person they're looking for. And he responds with this astounding statement of, I am he. Now, we have in other gospel accounts Judas who approaches Jesus and kisses him on the cheek, right? John omits this from his gospel account and only seems to focus in on Jesus' own statement of identification. Now, that to me is important to take note of. Now, Jesus, throughout John's gospel 
has used many I am sayings to identify himself in some way. We've looked at some of these. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd, so on and so forth. But that's a bit different than what's happening here, and I'm going to explain. First, if you do a bit of word study, again, which I love to do, and I'm not going to bore you with this. I, I think it's important, though. You'll see that when Jesus responded to the arresting party in this passage, he used a unique phrase, ego ami. This translates, I am. This is the same seemingly odd identifying phrase that God uses in Exodus 3.14 when Moses asks, God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replies to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were saying to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am, ego ami. This is quite literally what Jesus says in this passage in response to who they are looking for. Just to clarify, the he we read in verse five is not actually there in the original translations. It was added later. What makes I am distinctive in God's declaration to Moses, Exodus 3.14, is that it doesn't have what's called a predicate nominative. Now, I'm not going to bore you with an English lesson because I had to do this research and I had to refresh my memory because I was like, what is a predicate nominative? If you've forgotten your high school grammar like I have, the predicate nominative is essentially the second half of the sentence. For example, I am the good shepherd. That's the predicate nominative. Say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. There are three times in the Gospel of John when Jesus says, I am, without a predicate nominative. These passages seem to be more about Jesus' deity than all other I am sayings in John. Not more important than, but it's more distinct in terms of there's no predicate nominative. So it's here that he simply replies, I am, without a predicate nominative. Essentially, he's, he's taking the name of God and he's applying it to himself. Who is it that you're seeking? Because I'm going to tell you who you found. Yes, I am Jesus of Nazareth, but I am also the great I am. I exist. I always have been. I always will be. I have no beginning. I have no end. I am everything. I'm essentially an uncaused cause. I am God. And guess what? This isn't the first time that he's done this either. You know, there's, it's funny, I don't know why, but there are skeptics. I don't know if they still exist, but there's definitely skeptics that existed in the past that say, well, Jesus is a good prophet, but he never, he never claimed to be God. That's nonsense. That statement is nonsense. It's false. If you, all you have to do is read the Gospel of John. You can read about Jesus identifying himself in this way in John chapter 6, where Jesus is walking on the sea and he identifies himself to his disciples who are afraid. He uses this exact same phrase. But we're not going to look at that. We're going to look at John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. We're not going to read it for sake of time, but basically I'm going to summarize it. So Jesus, again, in John chapter 8, is being questioned by the Jewish people for some of the things that he's teaching in the temple, these hard-to-digest teachings that, that he seems to have. Who do you think you are? It's essentially what they're asking him. They're they're accusing him of having a demon in this passage. They're, they're calling him crazy. The things you're saying, are, you're nuts. 
And Jesus answers them like this, Abraham, the father of your faith. So he's calling on their patriarch now. Yeah, Abraham, that guy who's like the patriarch of everything that is that you believe in. Yeah, he saw my day coming and he rejoiced. Their response? Okay, hang on, Jesus. What did you just say? You're not old enough to have even seen Abraham, and yet you're claiming to essentially be greater than he is. And Jesus replies to them in verse 58 of John chapter 8, Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. This, to the Jewish people, to the religious leaders, was complete blasphemy. They actually try to stone him in this passage. It says that Jesus was was able to get away and hide from them. So Jesus has been making these claims of deity. This is nothing new. So he does this in front of this mob that has come to arrest him. And can I just pause right here and say this? It's it's this bold statement from Christ and the one in John chapter 8 and the one in John chapter 6 that essentially separates Christ and Christianity from any other religion. Like it's this statement. As a matter of fact, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say it. This is what makes Christianity Superior, true, ultimate, absolute, is a statement like this. See, here's the thing. A lot of good, uh, we won't even say good. A lot of religious founders, should I say, of many different religions that exist in the world today will make a lot of different claims. They'll say things like, here, I'm going to help show you the way, lead you to the way. I'm going to help guide you to truth whatever that means for you, or, you know, I'm here to help point you in the direction of having life. That's not what Jesus says. With statements like I am, he's nailing down with authority this simple fact that I am the way, the truth, and the life. That I am God. Okay, I'm not here to help you find God. No, I'm God, and I'm here to find you, my lost sheep. You see how that's different than any other religion that exists? C.S. Lewis was was right. There's this trilemma that he famously spoke about when it comes to, to Jesus. He said, listen, Jesus is either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord. It's one of those three. And you can test each one of those based upon the scriptures and other historical documents. And spoiler alert, he's Lord. Because if he's not, he's one of the other two. He's Lord and he's God. So in verse 6, what's this response? What's the response to this claim of deity? These some 600 Roman soldiers who, if you know anything about Roman soldiers, they are battle-worn. They are made from the blood, sweat, and tears of their victims. Like, these dudes are brutal. They were notorious for being brutal. Like that was like a claim to fame for them. They liked how people viewed them in the sense of they are intimidating. They play no games. They've seen and caused more death than you and I will ever see in our lifetime. And two words from this seemingly nobody carpenter from Nazareth puts them on the ground. Create it for yourself. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. That's incredible. 
before this job, I taught, I taught in prison a lot uh, uh, prior to, to being here um, through my last company. Um, my old boss is actually here. Hi, Angela. Um, and I can't tell you how many times I came across an inmate with these words tattooed on them, and maybe you've seen it before, but the, the words, only God can judge me. And knowing the sentiment behind it, I understood what they meant by it, but I would always assure them that I don't, I don't think you really know what you're asking. Like, I get it. I get the sentiment of it. But I don't think you really know what you're asking. And when God's presence is known, when he appears, we fall flat on our faces. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Joshua, Daniel, Peter, James, John, Paul on the road to Damascus, you feel very small and insignificant in the presence of the Almighty. Now, for some of us, this is, that's speaking of judgment. So for some of them, that's speaking of judgment, just seeing the presence of the Almighty. But some of us, when we've encountered the grace and mercy of God in our life, the good part, the grace and mercy, our initial reaction might be something similar to Peter in Luke chapter 5. Go away from me, Lord. We put our face down in shame. We're not worthy of your love and grace and mercy in our life. These men, these soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane, experienced God in the flesh, and it completely flattened them. And this is Jesus' claim of deity on full display. Point number two this morning. So we see Jesus' claim of deity. Point number two is that we see Jesus' care for his disciples. Jesus' care for his disciples. Look again in verse 7. Then he asked them again, Who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. It was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. So in one of the darkest moments of Jesus' life, no doubt, he reveals something spectacular about himself and his heart. We've already seen his claim of deity on display in earlier verses, but it's still fully evident here in his response to who it is that these men are looking for. I mean, did you see it? Who is it that you're seeking? He asked them that twice. Was he confused? Was he just trying to clarify what they said, that he heard them correctly? Was he trying to stall? Why did he ask them that twice? Well, what does he say in response to them saying, Jesus of Nazareth? He says, I've already told you I am he, so if you're looking for me, let these men go. So let me get this straight. In this very moment when hundreds of men have come to arrest, mock, beat, and ultimately kill Jesus, his concern in that moment was not for his own safety, but for the safety of his disciples. That's where his concern was in this moment. Not anything for himself, but for his disciples. These same disciples that will all turn their back on him, some in a few short moments and some in a few short hours. 
So this incredible claim of I am was not then some form of trying to advance Jesus' own cause, but rather it was a shield for his disciples. Okay, let me explain. In a way, he sacrificed himself for their safety in this moment like a good shepherd would always do for his sheep. Remember back in chapter 17, again, that same prayer, verses 11 and 12. Jesus says this. This is when he's praying specifically for the disciples. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Speaking of his disciples. Lost my place. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. Verse 12. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, except Judas. He had promised the father that he would protect them and he fulfilled that promise in this passage, that promise in the voluntary surrender of his life to these men who came to arrest him. Essentially, he's saying, it's me you want, not them. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, that's me. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, I told you, that's me. This has nothing to do with them. You got to remember, first and foremost, and this is something as I was talking through these notes, uh, it dawned on me, not this point, but stick with me. Remember that Jesus is God. Spoiler alert. Like, Jesus is God. That's something I have to remember here. So he knows when it will be the disciples' time to be martyred. Like, he knows when their time is. Now is not the time for them. Not only that, Jesus, we have to remember in the, in, in the context of, of that day and age, he was seen as this militant leader, this Messiah, this, this king that was here to overthrow and establish his rule. He's once again assuring them that there will be no insurrection here. That's not what this is. The deity of Jesus is on full display through his identification of himself, but we can clearly see his, his deity on display in the concern he cared and possessed for his disciples. He's concerned that they not be arrested, that they be allowed to go free. Jesus was concerned for their protection. So how does this too demonstrate his deity? By the simple fact that he cared more for their welfare than he did his own. His actions demonstrate not the selfishness uh, that... Uh, not the selfishness manifested by most humans in this situation, what we would probably do, every man for himself, but by a self-sacrificing love that defies description. That is from God. Only God is able to love to that magnitude. Jesus is, in fact, the good shepherd. He's backing up his claims right here. He's willingly and selflessly and sacrificially laying down his life for his sheep. So that's point number two. Let's move on to point number three, which is Jesus' unbiased compassion. Jesus' unbiased compassion. I want to I move ahead to verse 10 and then read the first half of verse 11. And uh, we'll, we'll continue on. So Jesus' unbiased compassion. Verse 10 says this, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. 
At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Okay, I'm going to be honest. I thought about skipping this point or at least just kind of lumping it into my final point as like a little sub point. Um, But there's something about this display of compassion on this man named Malchus that is recorded in other gospels that I kind of wanted to pull into this that I think fits in perfectly to what it is I'm trying to, I'm trying to get you to see this morning, as well as the sole purpose of John's gospel too. So it's here that we have the heroically stupid decision on Peter's part. Remember, everything we know up until this point, they are surrounded by hundreds of soldiers. Jesus has just clearly made it known that it's him they want, not the disciples. And then there's Peter. When the soldiers come to take Jesus away, Peter draws his sword. It was probably more of a dagger than a sword, but whatever. I try to picture him with like this samurai sword, like unsheathing it. And he cuts off the right ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus. Now, I do not for one minute believe that Peter was just trying to wound anybody. Now, that's speculative. We don't know that he was aiming to kill. But knowing what we know about Peter, like he was willing to like let it go down if this ever, if it ever came to this. And so I believe that he was aiming to kill. He missed and he only got an ear. So what happened? Why why include this? I know this is a very climactic point in the story, but in John's gospel account, this seems kind of like a, oh yeah, then Peter did this, Jesus rebuked him, and then moved on, because I feel like there was a lot of other stuff to unpack here. But why include this? Well, if you read this account in Luke's gospel, in chapter 22, verse 51, it tells us that Jesus reached out to Malchus and restores his ear. And there it is. It's something that simple that I want to point out, that only God can do things of this nature. We've seen this time and time again throughout Jesus' ministry, healing after healing after healing. And even now amongst the chaos of his arrest, Jesus heals. You know, Jesus said and did a lot of things that are recorded in the Gospels. And John's Gospel account seems to rest a lot on he, he, okay, let me just put it this way. He includes details that I think are important for the purpose of his gospel. So let's, let's jump ahead to John chapter 20. Again, I know we've read these verses before, and we're going to get there eventually once we actually get to chapter 20, but I want to read them to you again. John's purpose of his gospel is written down in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not even written in this book. There's way more I could have written you, but this is what I've written down. I've written these so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of John's gospel. So it's details like this that matter to me. The parentheses, and the servant's name was Malchus. This is strategic stuff from John. Even someone like Malchus, the high priest servant, has seen and experienced Jesus' messianic display. He's seen the miraculous. He's experienced it physically himself. So John essentially is probably saying, if you read between the lines, listen, I wrote these things that you would believe. You don't believe me? Find Malchus and ask him. He's around. Or ask one of his relatives, ask them what happened that night in the garden with his ear. 
Christ's deity on full display once again through his unbiased compassion on this man. And be honest, most of us would have been glad to see our friends fighting for us and inflicting damage on the enemy. I would have. But I'm like, Peter, there's like hundreds of these dudes, but I appreciate it, bro. I appreciate the effort. Like we all knew how this was going to end, but not Jesus. What does Jesus do? He rebukes Peter. That's what we're going to get to in the next and final point, but he rebukes Peter. He was moved with compassion for one who was his enemy, and not only that, he reached out and he healed him. And by the way, it's for this reason I kept this point as is, because this is exactly what he did for you and for me. You and I were the enemies of God, yet Ephesians 2 tells us that he reached out to us while we were dead in our sins, while we were at enmity with God, and gave us eternal life by grace through faith. It's a free gift. And I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, especially this verse, this seemingly insignificant parenthetical verse about Malchus, I'm glad that the Lord was moved with compassion when he saw me. That's it. That, that's, what I, that's what I see here. Had it not been for the love and compassion of God in my life, I would still be dead in my sin and on my way to hell. And that's a fact. So if you're like me and you've, given, you've been given the gift of eternal life, that's just something to think about this morning. Rejoice over that. And if you aren't a believer, you're not sure that you've ever had that free gift of eternal life. You're not sure if you believe in this Jesus guy. Well, you're in good company because if you simply believe, believing in him, you will have life in his name. That's what John's gospel tells us. So if you haven't noticed up until this point, I've been kind of building a case, not that he needs me to in any way, shape, or form, uh, for the idea that Jesus is indeed deity. He is indeed God, the great I am. And we'll hopefully see, hopefully we've seen this through his claim of deity, his care for his disciples, and his unbiased compassion on Malchus. But a final proof of his deity is seen in the fact that he seems so determined to go to the cross. So that's point number four this morning. I want us to look at Jesus's commitment to the cup. And we're going to look at verse 11 and 12, and then we'll wrap up here. Verse 11 says this, at that, so after Peter retaliates, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the company of soldiers, the commander, and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and tied him up. So let's get real here this morning. I hate putting myself in Jesus' shoes. I don't like to do it. But I can't help but think, if this had been myself, I'm not even going to speak for you. You answer this question for yourself. We would have been looking for a way out of all of this, would we not? Like, if this is me, once there was word out for our arrest, I think most of us would have been like, hush, hush. We're going to knock it off. We're going to quit this Jesus stuff because, like, they're going to arrest me. (laughs) They want me dead. I don't want to die, so I'm just going to kind of fly under the radar for a little bit. You know, in the garden, I think I would have been looking for some kind of escape clause, you know, like plead my case, maybe try to cut a deal. I don't know what, like take three of my friends here, the three that I like the least, and then let me free or something. Not Jesus. No, like Isaiah says in chapter 50 of his book, he set his face like a flint, and he went to the cross 
and he drank the bitter cup of death for you and for me. So setting your face like a flint implies that you're expecting some opposition in the things that you are about to embark on, but to stand strong in the face of adversity. To set your face like a flint means to regard these difficulties as worthwhile when you consider what they will ultimately lead you to, and that's Christ. His commitment Jesus says to Peter, am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? In Psalm chapter 75, which is a psalm about God judging the wicked, we see this idea spoken about. This idea in verse 8, the image of a cup filled with wine represents the coming judgment of God. At a time that only God knows, he will judge the wicked. That's what verse 2 tells us. Basically, he's going to give them their due. Those who have rejected God will drink the wine of his judgment and draining the glass to the very bottom. Uh, uh, The psalm says in verse 8, draining it to the dregs. That's what that means. Draining it to the very bottom, drinking every last drop, drop of God's wrath. It's Old Testament passages like Psalm 75 that help us understand the ministry of Jesus a little bit more clearly. Again, it's not that Jesus was just some good teacher, good prophet that died for a cause that he believed in. So in Mark chapter 10, James and John ask Jesus if they could share in his kingly glory. They're kind of bickering about who can sit where at the right hand of God and all of this stuff and who's going to be on which side and who's going to be in this place of prominence. And Jesus' response in verse 38 of Mark chapter 10, basically he says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering and wrath and judgment that I'm about to drink? You see, Jesus would drink the cup of God's judgment, taking it upon himself, taking upon himself the penalty for our sin. And no doubt the cup he is referring to in verse 11 in our passage is the same cup that he prayed the Father would take away if it be at all possible in Matthew chapter chapter 26, verse 39. But we have to remember that the prayer did not end there. God, remove this cup from me. How does that prayer end? He says, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus set out, he was committed to drink the cup set before him, no matter what. In faithfulness to the will of the Father, Jesus chose to drink the cup of judgment, to bear the weight of our sin, and it's because of this truth that we no longer have to fear the cup of God's wrath. When you're in Christ, you no longer have to fear the wrath of God for the sins in your life because Jesus drank that cup for you. And in fact, Jesus then offers those who believe in him the cup of the new covenant in his blood that was shed on the cross. It's through this sacrifice, Jesus' act of drinking the cup, that we are forgiven if we put our trust in him, if we simply believe. That's incredible. Speaking of judgment, when it comes to judgment, I've, I've heard it put this way before, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, but I've heard it said this way. Secular people say there's no judgment because there's no God. That doesn't make sense. No God, no judgment. Religious people say there is judgment, so you better be good. And Christianity teaches that there is judgment and you don't stand a chance. So Jesus stood in your place. 
And Jesus' surrender to this judgment and punishment did not just, it didn't just happen at the cross. Rather, the moment he got up from praying in the garden that night, yet not as I will, but as you will, all throughout his ministry, continually submitting to the Father and to his will. He was committed, and he took the cup and accepted the task before him to be our substitute on the cross and in his death. So as we've seen in this passage, he did not hide or shy away. He stepped out into the crowd, and he plainly identifies himself. There was no attempt to flee. He even rebuked one of his disciples when they tried to fight. Kind of echoes that of Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus rebukes and calls Peter Satan. Essentially, Peter, I I have to die for you. This has to come to pass. You're concerned with human. You're thinking in in terms of of human thinking. You're You're not considering God's plan here. And as the writer of Isaiah put it in chapter 53, verse 7, speaking of Jesus, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He just committed and went to the cross. And I'm grateful this morning that Jesus did not flinch in the face of the cross. He did not flinch in the face of his enemies. He did not flinch in the face of false accusations. I'm so thankful that he was willing to go to the cross and die for my sins so that I could have eternal life in his name. We have an incredible God. Hope in the midst of a seemingly hopeless situation. Because as we read and, and conclude in verse 12, it says, Then the company of soldiers, the commander, and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and tied him up. And as we'll see next week, he's going to be falsely accused, and, and, and there's going to be a slew of mess that happens over the next couple of passages. We ultimately know what happens. We'll continue to read and learn about all that in the coming weeks. But even in such a dark and seemingly sad passage, the betrayal of Jesus, we see the glory of God so evident in the person of Jesus Christ. I hope you didn't miss it. I hope when you read this passage in the future, maybe you'll remember some of this. It'll give you a fresh perspective on what went down in the Garden of Gethsemane that night. Not simply just a sad story of betrayal, but the story of the glory of God on full display. And that glory being displayed through Jesus's claim of deity. Behold the almighty God fall down before him. His care for his disciples, the fact that he is in fact the good shepherd who willingly lays down his life for his sheep. His unbiased compassion and praise God that Christ has compassion for his enemies because we were once his enemies. And for his commitment to the cup, that he took the wrath of God upon himself, drank that cup every last drop, so that we may have the opportunity to drink the cup of the new covenant in his blood.